you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. My pleasure to be joined today by UCLA Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases and Medical Director of Antimicrobial Stewardship at the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, Dr. Thera Vijayan. Dr. Vijayan, so good to have you with us again on AirTalk. Really nice to be here. Thank you so much, Larry. So let's start with what appears to be some good news and and not to ignore the fact that we've had some increasing deaths uh, from the Omicron uh, variant of COVID-19, people who have been sick for, for a period of time. But when it comes to Omicron's um, new infections, it appears we've definitely turned a corner. Your thoughts on where we're at? Uh, there's no question, Larry. Uh, you know, we're definitely seeing far fewer infections uh, in the community as well as in the hospital. Our numbers are going down in both both places, and it's a huge relief for me personally, for sure. And at uh, UCLA, uh, can you share with us just, you know, wh- whether this has had an effect on morale or energy level? Because we know at, at, at hospitals uh, throughout our region, people have been very stressed and exhausted caring for all the people coming in. Yes, uh, you know, I think overall the morale definitely has improved. I think, you know, we were we were suffering multiple uh, situations in the beginning of January, towards the end of December and the beginning and all throughout January, actually. One was that we were definitely seeing more patients in the hospital. We were also seeing a large uh, number of patients outside of the hospital getting infected in high-risk individuals. Um, and we were trying to get them, you know, some of the medications that we have available in the outpatient setting that continue to be a scarce resource. So that that's something that I oversee um, along with a, a number of other um, individuals. And um, that was something that we were really struggling with. And then on top of that, we had, you know, just shortages in staff because people were also getting infected. And, and so all of that took a tremendous strain in the in and outside of the hospital. Deborah in Long Beach emailed us. I've not heard an explanation of what more contagious actually means. Does it mean that the virus is spreading farther, that it stays in the air longer? Just wondering what, you know, what what does this mean when we say a particular strain is more contagious? It's a really great question. And, and I don't think I have, you know, the answers regarding um, how much, you know, what environmental factors are at play here. I think just very um, basic, you know, basic information about that is how many people get infected for for every one person that's infected. You know, how many close contacts can actually get infected? And there's no question that 
more more individuals that um, surround that are in close proximity to an individual that has the current variant can get infected. And that's, you know, that's essentially what it means. We do think that to some extent, it is perhaps a little bit more um, likely to be airborne, which is why we were all uh, advocating for the N95s with this particular variant. Um, we, you know, essentially in the hospitals, um, we've been using N95s for patients that actually have uh, COVID-19, but um, just, you know, walking around where more, more and more of us are feeling more comfortable using N95s or KN95s rather than the surgical masks. And I was wondering whether, uh, theoretically, it could be, for lack of a better term, the stickiness of the specific spike proteins with um, Omicron, for example. Is there something that just makes it easier to invade and, and to hang on? Yeah, certainly. Omicron has many more mutations in the spike crypt and the spike protein, which is the, the protein that actually attaches to um, the receptors in the different parts of our bodies. Um, there, there is something to be said about that. I think stickiness is a hard thing because we still don't think of, you know, of any of the coronaviruses really being trans, all that transmissible with just contact alone. It really does have to be, you know, you're in close proximity and you're inhaling these viruses, not necessarily touching these viruses and transmitting it that way. Ray in Santa Clarita emailed, I got both Moderna vaccines tested uh, highly positive for antibodies after those injections. What do you think about uh, having my booster uh, of the J&J vaccine for diversity? It's uh, a great question. You know, there, um, there are good data to suggest that if you get the J&J first, then getting the mRNA certainly enhances your immunity and enhances, you know, the sort of the spectrum of antibodies that your body produces, as well as your T-cell immunity. Um, whether getting the J&J after the two Moderna, I don't think we have great data to necessarily suggest that. I think that, um, you know, getting a, a third booster with one of the two mRNAs is probably, is has become convention and, and that's what I would personally choose. Um, I think until we get more data on um, the addition of the J&J after the two mRNAs, I wouldn't necessarily advocate that. 866-893-KPCC. Nick in Santa Monica says, I work eight hours a day as a bank teller, public-facing job, wear an N95 mask. How frequently should I be replacing my mask? Daily? Weekly? So I, I would actually probably use, uh, change it out every day, but you don't necessarily have to throw it away. You can certainly, you know, what I've been doing with some of our uh, N95s or KN95s is actually putting it in a brown bag and separating it for a little bit um, and then reusing them, you know, in a couple of days. Um, but I, I would probably change out the N95 every day. All right. Uh, we have Krill, um, no location, who emailed us. Kirill, I'm sorry. Vaccines have not yet been approved for children under five. How dangerous is COVID for kids in that age group? So we have seen an increase in the number of children under the age of five um, be hospitalized. And, and that's in part a reflection of just how transmissible this is. And there are going to be some kids that actually wind up getting sicker than others. Um, so there's no question that, um, you know, that we've seen children under the age of five become hospitalized and it's, it's very hard to, to see that. But, um, uh, you know, I, I'm hopeful that um, with the 
future FDA uh, EUAs for Pfizer at least, um, and you know, with some additional research on perhaps a third needed dose for in that population, um, that population will eventually become protected as well. Pfizer expecting to ask uh, the FDA to authorize the vaccine for kids under five. And um, do you think the FDA is going to be more cautious given the youth of that age group than they've been with other age groups? I think they will be appropriately cautious because the data uh, with two doses of that lower dose has not generated as much immunity in that population. And I think what they will have to ultimately decide is whether they would agree to pursuing the EUA with the expectation that we'll get more data with an additional dose and hopefully that'll allow for continued use in that population. B and Paso Robles emailed us. I got my antibody levels tested recently, was hoping to learn whether or not I um, had sufficient antibodies after being vaccinated and boosted. I was among the first to begin the vaccination process in February of last year. The lab reported I had no antibodies. Is this common? Should be the test be repeated? Should I get another booster now? It's a great question. And, and ultimately, this boils down to what is the utility of the antibody test? The antibody test only shows us one part of the immune system. It doesn't show us the entire uh, immune system as a whole. And, and you know, as, as we've talked about there, there is also the, the T cells, which are a major part in preventing hospitalization. Um, and again, if we if we sort of think about what is the goal of the vaccine, it's it is in part to prevent infection, but the real goal is to prevent hospitalization. Um, I think your not having antibodies might be just a reflection of the fact that your body hasn't seen coronavirus in some time or any component of coronavirus. So you you probably do have some memory cells, memory B cells that will produce antibodies if you are exposed to coronavirus. Um, But there is some thought um, and there's evidence to suggest that the booster actually does prevent hospitalization if uh, uh, among those who had gotten their last dose more than five months prior. So, you know, um, I I think the short answer is I'm not sure the antibody necessarily says anything, but if you had got, if you've not gotten, if you had gotten your last dose, your second dose uh, more than five months prior, then you certainly would warrant a booster. There uh, are some people who have sought out getting a second booster shot and you know, is there any risk in, in doing that, Dr. Vijayan? I don't recommend a second booster shot. Now, there's a lot of confusion about this. And, you know, when we, uh, in the later part of the summer, so around August, there was a recommendation to get a supplemental dose for those individuals who are at highest risk of not mounting an adequate immune response to the two doses. And those are individuals who have uh, significant immunocompromising conditions. That supplemental dose was the full dose of um, either the Pfizer or the Moderna. Um, And in those individuals, it is recommended to get the actual booster, um, which is a fourth dose. Uh, at least five months uh, after their their supplemental dose, but for the rest of the population who who you know who don't have any specific immunocompromising conditions, three doses are enough for now. And I, and I would say without additional data, I would not support getting an additional dose. 
Ivy in Altadena emailed us. The message from the federal government is that we're in better shape now because we have more tools in our arsenal to prevent serious illness and death. If that's true, why is the death and hospitalization rate still so high? Why aren't they scaling up some of the medicines that help? Uh, it's it's a great question. I you know uh, you know as as with anything, and if, you know I guess maybe what I should start with is when you actually think about the time that it takes for us to develop most drugs. Um, and actually, I heard a great talk the other day about a new agent for a virus called cytomegalovirus or CMB, which disproportionately affects individuals that are immunocompromised. That drug took 10 years to actually get FDA, you know, from the time of, um, of creation to the time of approval, it took a decade. And that's, that's normal. So, you know, I think what we're dealing with right now is a lot of really promising drugs that have, you know, some data, not, not overwhelming data to support their use, um, but compelling enough data to certainly prioritize it for individuals who are at highest risk of hospitalization. Um, but you know uh, the the production is going to lag because they are new they are new drugs and they they require their own supplies to produce and um, and uh, resources and, and and so forth. So my hope is that in time those those drugs will be produced in sufficient quantity to really prevent again the highest those who are at highest risk of hospitalization. Those continue to be those who are unvaccinated, those who are not vaccinated or those who have immunocompromising conditions that make them less likely to respond to the vaccine. Uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. That, you know, that, that it'll, it'll come with time, but, but we are talking about completely different timescales when we think about just drug development in general. I was reading a piece by Rongong Lin II uh, and Luke Money in the LA Times about Omicron and how we in Southern California have been hit much harder than the Bay Area. And I wonder what your observations are about that. Why, why have we been more vulnerable than our neighbors to the north? It's a great question. And, and I, you know, I, I would caution about making too many assumptions about why this is happening. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an East Coast transplant by way of the Bay Area. I spent about a decade in the Bay Area. And I will tell you that um, the, the populations are very different. The density is very different. I don't think it has as much to do with under vaccination as, as I think that people would want to sort of fit into, into the narrative. Uh, I, I really do think it's largely just about how many people we have living in this region of the state um, and also the, the living conditions, right? So um, we, we certainly have many more, I, I believe, um, multi-generational homes. Yes. So people living in, um, you know, in apartment complexes, lots of people living in the same spaces, and that's definitely going to increase transmissibility and infection. And it is going to, and it's going to make individuals who are vulnerable, um, vulnerable to becoming hospitalized. Uh, I was, it was, it was interesting because I was going to raise that very issue with you if you hadn't brought that up, because I do think it's very different. I do think we have many more multi-generational households. And if you go back to the early days of, of COVID-19, uh, aside from congregate care facilities, of course, many of which were devastated by COVID, where so much of this we saw was coming from family, not workplace, but family exposure, because just you know one person out doing essential work 
brings it into the close quarters, and then it spreads and and has had some devastating effects on families. No question. We we actually published a study on this very early on in 2020 um, that looked at what are the sociostructural uh, determinants of uh, test positivity in the different parts of LA County. And what we found was actually um, communities that had many more multi-generational homes um, actually had higher test positivity. And that, you know, that, that's the data are very apparent. We, we certainly saw that, you know, in the hospitals when we saw all these families um, hospitalized, multiple members of families hospitalized, and it was very devastating. Mm. Uh, but, but we did actually have data to support that. Larry at uh, LAX asked, do breakthrough cases for those who are vaccinated contribute to further variants and mutations? Great question, uh, Larry. Invariably, if you have ongoing mul- um, multiplication of the virus, you are going to see emergence of variants. So breakthrough infections in theory will actually contribute to the emergence of variants. I think that we know that um, the overall viral load among those who are infected, even if they have a breakthrough infection, is going to be lower. So the hope is that, you know, you know, as long as we can get to, you know, a low enough level of ongoing viral replication, um, there aren't going to be as many variants that emerge. 866-893-KPCC. Daniel in Norwalk says, from the stance of someone who isn't vaccinated but has experienced COVID, what are the risks that I'm facing uh, that my body hasn't already started to adjust to because I previously had COVID? I'm not sure I... uh, You might understand that question better than I I do, but uh, if you do, go ahead, doctor. Actually, yeah, I would I would love to hear it one more time. I didn't. Okay, quite... let me reread it because I'm I'm not quite yeah. following. From the stance, so Daniel saying for someone who isn't vaccinated but has had COVID, what are the risks I'm facing that my body hasn't already started to adjust to because I previously had COVID? I'm sorry, it's still not clear to me what that question is. Yeah, I I mean I, um, I don't know if the question just. Um, is is asking, um, you know, what are sort of the effects of having had COVID um, and can somebody sort of overcome those effects? I, I, maybe I'm, he's talking about immunity. Um, maybe the question is about to what degree does he have immunity after having had COVID? I'm not sure. So yeah, why don't well, we take that? We'll, we'll say that's his question. So what, um, what, to what degree is he vulnerable to COVID? Yeah, yeah. So he is still vulnerable. Um, there's no question. And and in fact, we do think of actually individuals who have had COVID, who get vaccinated, actually have uh, uh, have actually quite improved immunity uh, after the vaccination. There is some thought that you know having had the infection plus getting the vaccine offers um, a higher quality of the of the antibodies and the overall immune response against COVID nineteen. So I would certainly encourage him. Um, to get vaccinated, um, even if he had COVID previously. Um, so, you know, no no contraindications to getting vaccinated if you've had COVID previously. And in fact, you may be much better off. Tony in Mission Viejo asks, and, and we take this question periodically, it's been asked on these segments many times, but how do you respond to someone who says, 
um, he or she is is concerned about the long-term impact of the vaccine, that they may not have an immediate negative reaction to it, but that months or years down the road, there will be some sort of damage done to their body from the vaccine. So how I would respond to that is is just based on the on what we know of the science of these actual vaccines and um, you know and none none of the technology with the exception of I guess mRNA itself which even that is not a is not a new technology we've known about it for a decade or more um, but you know everything else about the vaccine includes technology that has been used previously. Um, and, and, you know, we've had a wealth of information about other vaccines that, that don't show any long-term effects um, with those vaccines. So, you know, I, I think I would just, um, I would just talk about the history of vaccines and, and knowing, you know, that the vaccines that we use right now are, are very, very safe. Um, mRNA technology, I think, feels scary because it sounds like it's going to integrate into your own DNA or um, or something to that effect, but but it doesn't. There's no way that mRNA can actually integrate into DNA. Um, so that you know, that's that's what I would say for now. Um, I mean, I would definitely invite more questions to get a sense of what specific concerns people have about the long-term effects. Mike in Altadena tweeted at uh, AirTalk, can you clarify how it's typically a sign that a virus is dying off when it starts becoming more easily transmissible? Yeah, um, it's a good question. And I, and I think that, and I'm not a virologist, so, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of overspeak about this, but there is, there is something to be said about um, sort of trade-offs in uh, in transmissibility and virulence, and and that has maybe to do with the overall. Uh, well, there's a there's a phrase that we use calling called fitness. Um, so if if a you know viruses that um, persist and um, and are more transmissible um, sort of lose their ability over time to become more virulent because they want to be able to have a host to infect, and if they have hosts that die. They're just not going to be, they're not going to last in the community for that long. Um, so there's sort of this evolutionary idea about trade-offs and fitness that come with both transmissibility and virulence. James in Torrance emailed us, said, four of the six people in my house have recently tested positive for COVID. I seem to recall from prior AirTalk discussions that a person without COVID is unlikely to get it by eating food cooked by someone who has COVID, but I'm reluctant to rely entirely on my memory. Can you please indicate under what circumstances someone could catch COVID from eating food cooked by someone who's tested positive? Yeah, uh, I don't see any any reason to not share food. You shouldn't share utensils, um, and, and maybe that that's obvious, but, um, but prepared food, as long as there are separate utensils that are being used, um, can be potentially shared. There's no, there's no reason to believe that, um, that, um, that getting, having food from someone who has COVID um, will necessarily increase your risk of, of acquiring COVID. Uh, we have uh, 
Maria, in Atwater Village, following up on the question that we had uh, from uh, the West Hollywood, uh, I believe it was, uh, no, it was Nick in Santa Monica earlier as a bank teller. So he has part of his job and interacting with the public wears an N95 mask and was asking about how to switch them out. And you answered that question. And Maria wonders, well, what about kids who are also wearing their N95 masks at school all day? Should they do the similar thing of switching them out uh, at the end of each day? Yeah, that that is what we do in our household. I have an eight and a five year old and we have them wear different masks every day. Um, And we we essentially reuse their masks by putting them in a brown bag. As long as they're not overly contaminated, you know, with anything, um, it's fine to actually reuse them, but probably reuse them in a couple of days. Okay. So does that, so do you have like a rotation of like three to five of them? Is is that how you do it? We do. Yeah. I mean, we, we have purchased quite a few of the KN95s. Um, so, you know, we, we have quite a, quite a bit, but, um, but we, we reuse them. Yeah. I would say one every, every seven days or so. Georgine in Palos Verdes emailed us, my 22-year-old daughter recovered from COVID a month ago. When should she get her booster shot? Great question. And, you know, uh, there's some thought that there's no harm to getting it sooner rather than later. But the question is, when it when is it going to benefit you the most? And having had COVID after having gotten the two shots, you probably have a decent amount of immunity for some time. I think that um, I would probably wait about three months at least to get the booster shot, um, potentially longer. But, uh, you know, there there's no clear risk to as far as we know to getting it sooner than that. It's really about just trying to maximize the benefit. And um, and I would say probably wait at least three months. Dr. Vijayan, as as you know, there's been some criticism of Governor Newsom, Mayor Garcetti, and uh, other public figures over having their masks off, at least for some period of time, when they were uh, socializing at the Rams uh, NFC Playoff Championship game uh, Sunday afternoon. And, you know, coming out of that, Catherine Barger, L.A. County supervisor, has said, you know, we, we really need to rethink uh, the mandate because, you know, there's often such little compliance in spaces like that, and people have the capability to make up their own minds about when they need to wear a mask. What are your thoughts about that? And, and you know, are we reaching the point where we can re- reconsider these mask mandates as San Francisco is doing? So I think that we are just turning the corner with Omicron. And I I personally uh, think that we should wait just a little bit before we feel completely comfortable that we're sort of out of this, this surge. Um, there's no question that during the surge, the mask mandates were are a really important way to prevent ongoing transmission. Um, and again, our primary goal is to prevent hospitalizations, right? And and we saw a huge increase in hospitalizations. So, I think until we feel really comfortable that we're we're out of the surge, I would I would not necessarily get rid of um, mask mandates indoors and in very densely populated outdoor spaces, such as large stadiums where there are thousands of people. Um, but you know, I think that once we're out of that, there certainly I, I would feel very comfortable starting to let go a little bit and and allowing for 
vaccinated individuals to unmask. Joy in Glendale, in a related vein, uh, asks, what is the criteria for COVID being considered endemic in the U.S.? How will things have to change for us to to consider it that? And how close are we to that scenario? Uh, great question. Um, one that, you know, I, I don't have any specific answers for. I think that what we should try to imagine is a baseline rate of infection that doesn't overwhelm our hospital, um, that doesn't overwhelm our, our hospital systems. Um, so that, you know, there there has to be a low enough rate of ongoing transmission where we're, we're just not seeing as many patients in the hospital hospitalized because of COVID, not not incidentally with COVID. Peter in Pasadena wonders about the rotating the N95 or KN95 masks by putting them in a brown paper bag. What is the reason for doing that versus, you know, hanging them in the air where air just circulates through them? Yeah, I, um, it's more um, just keeping them out of uh you know, indoor spaces. If you if you, if you wanted to hang them outside, I think it's perfectly fine to hang them outside as well. Um, I think it's just more, uh, you know, while it doesn't necessarily last on surfaces for a long period of time, um, I it's what we used to do with um, with N95s when we had a shortage was actually, you know, as you may remember, we would actually irradiate it with ultraviolet um, gamma radiation. And then and then separate them with brown paper bags. So I, I'm sort of using that as as my convention without the ultraviolet radiation. We have uh, one uh, other question. Michael in West Hollywood wonders about medical professionals spreading misinformation about vaccines. And Michael wonders, you know, um, is this a threat to those individuals' medical licenses? How do they keep their licenses if they're going on broadcasts or podcasts and making uh, factually inaccurate claims? A great question that, you know, we we don't, we haven't really seen that kind of punitive action um, as much as perhaps we should. Um, but this, this is not an isolated incident. You know, we've had, um, we've had physicians, um, you know, not recommending other vaccines for a long, long time. Um, and it does take a lot for there to be any significant punitive action, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I think the the main way we can really just try our best to um, to speak out against those those you know few individuals that there are, um, and really try to um, to do our own advocacy. Um, you know, unfortunately, there it's just it's not as commonplace to to have those kinds of reasons to have a medical license revoked. Thank you so much, Dr. Vijayan. It's great to talk with you again. We always appreciate you taking your time and joining us on Air Talk. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in LA. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. 
a private corporation funded by the American people.